Hello and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I'm your host this evening, Ceci Hotonu, Paediatric Surgery Registrar in Scotland. And once again, we've managed to beg, borrow, steal, I don't know what you want to call it, Paddy, vascular surgeon, is back as a co-host. How are you doing this evening, Paddy? I'm very good, very good. The sun is out and uh, summer is here. Yeah, all's good. Yeah, it's always good to have a bit of sunshine. Now we're continuing in the vascular surgery series that we've already started earlier in the year. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have another fantastic lady on the podcast. I feel like these days it's getting a little bit male skewed. No offense, Paddy. And you might... Those who are kind of um, sharp and very observant amongst you might have noticed my co-host Greg is missing today, but he is off saving the world one colorectal operation at a time. But never mind, we've got a fantastic lady, as I mentioned before, another vascular surgery trainee who is an absolute boss in the world of vascular research. We have Miss Ruth Benson joining us this evening. How are you this evening, Ruth? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Thank you for describing me as a boss. Same as Paddy, the sun is shining. And it's, yeah, it's nice. Nice way to spend an evening chatting to you guys. Well, we're so lucky to have you. And it's always great to be able to talk to people like yourself who are passionate about research and about collaborative research. And I'm sure our listeners are in for a treat. So usually in the podcast, we like to know a little bit about the individual behind the message. So nice open question to you, Ruth. Who is Ruth Benson? I am an ST8 in vascular surgery in the West Midlands. I am a mum of one. Okay. So I was finishing off my mat leave just as COVID hit uh, back in March. I'm uh, an academic clinical lecturer at the University of Birmingham as well, which I've been doing for about three and a half years. And yeah, I don't know, do you stick with my professional Ruth Benson or my... <laughs> It's all relevant here because apart from the professional life, you're still a human being. We like to know what makes you tick. So I'll be asking you a couple of quick fire questions to try and scratch the surface a little bit. But mandatory question for all vascular surgeons that come on this podcast. What is your favourite vein? What is my favourite vein? Mm. Ooh. Ooh. I think I think I've got to say... The radiocephalic vein. When I was a med student, the first vascular procedure I ever saw was a day case radiocephalic fistula. And I remember watching that thinking, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. And they opened up this fistula and this vein just took on a life of its own. And, you know, when you're a med student, you see lots of cool things and you think you want to do a bit of that, this, that and the other. And then I remember doing my first um, fistula as a vascular trainee thinking, I'm doing it. You know, I thought about it and now I'm doing it. And you just you always remember the way way something looks after you open it. And I always remember the way uh, that um, that vein looked and that fistula. That's amazing. Oh, mad! It is a running joke on this podcast that all the vascular surgeons love the long saphenous vein. They talk about it. They sing to it. They hold it in bed at night. But finally, someone who has a different opinion. I saw Paddy's face fall a little bit when you said that. I don't no, know. No, I, I, I can. I can fully appreciate the phallic vein I, I just in my practice I don't do much fistula work well, I don't do any fistula work but I did it as trainee so so may, maybe if you'd got me 10 years ago I might have said the phallic vein well there you have it ladies and gents for the first time a vascular surgeon who is not absolutely in love with the long saphenous I'm so pleased okay so let, let's learn a little bit more about you um why vascular surgery um, I, I did my, my first F1 job was in vascular and general surgery in Stirling Royal Infirmary up in Scotland. And I had an absolutely mad, absolutely brilliant female vascular registrar called Linda. And it was just at the time that the training, the MMC training was coming in and it was mm-hmm. all going a bit mad. And, you know, I was an F1 and I still knew nothing about anything. And um, I asked her, what it was going to mean for her and she said you know what it shouldn't make too much of a difference because there is more than one way to skin a cat and her perspective on that sort of treatment as well as the I guess the bosses there at the time and I thought that was a very nice way 
to look at it. And every subsequent vascular placement I had until my core training, I think I could safely say that the, the personalities within a vascular unit are very disparate and vascular surgeons are very much their own people. A lot of them are a little bit odd, but it all just works. And um, that was very appealing. I like to think of myself as the normal one uh, amongst the vascular team. But yeah, that just that really appealed. Okay, um, very fair reason. So that's the first of my so-called quick fire questions. There are five. So the follow-up question, vascular surgery is not a thing. What else would you do? Medical or otherwise? Uh, I'm a scuba diving instructor in Barbados. Oh, wow. (laughs) I like how you didn't have to think about that very long. No. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I'd be. Okay, um, you mentioned earlier that you are a mum of one. What is the most ridiculous thing your child has said to you in the past week? If your child can talk, that is. Yeah, so she's she's about to turn two. It's, you know, you, you suddenly, all of a sudden they wake up and they start repeating back everything that you've said. So this age seems to be an absolutely gorgeous age. Like it's it's very cute. Um, but you absolutely have suddenly have to control what you say. And um, there's a lot of, oh gosh, going around. And sometimes you just forget yourself. And I said, oh God, the other day. And that's it. She just looked me straight in the eyes and she said, oh god and that's all she's been saying for the past week so off she goes to nursery you know I dropped oh god well she sounds like a young lady that knows her mind I would say so (laughs) well um in all fairness it's not quite as bad as uh, our good family friends who have a three-year-old who describes everything as junk including her parents so could be so much worse nice next quick fire question favorite instrument surgical that is in the whole world so i've told you you have to go on the desert island all by your lonesome you can only take one surgical instrument what would it be a pair of gerards what are those then they are a pair of very delicate forceps and they lie just i would say uh, you might disagree but in my mind they lie in between ring tips and very delicate debakies in terms okay. of width of the the prong so um, ring tips are you know, very specific and you know you can't use them on soft tissue you can't use them for all sorts um, and bakeys are often just a bit too big for a baloney anastomosis and gerards are just just right. you see you see i would it would be a castro needle holder for me oh no those are good those are very good are you a, are you a ratchet or an unratcheted uh, vascular surgeon I'm still at the stage. I think as a registrar, you just do what your bosses do. So an old boss never used ratcheted. So mm. I learned to do it without ratchet. It was the most painful experience of my life. But I think ratchet. Yeah, ratchet, ratchet all the way. There's See, nothing yeah. like a good Castro needle holder. Yeah. Yeah. Curve, curve or straight? Do you, like, do you have the one with a little... No, curve. No, straight, sorry, straight. 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 Yeah, straight. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I feel like we've wandered down the rabbit hole now. And I've learned <laughs> something new about vascular surgery. You can either be ratcheted or not. So that's Rats- what I'm going to... <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to do now. Um, yeah. Apart from asking about veins, anytime I miss, a, I meet a vascular surgeon, I'll just sidle up to them and whisper, <sighs> ratchet or not. And I'm assuming they would all get it. They would. Yeah, really. I think so. I think so. <laughs> And they shake their hand out subconsciously as they remember the pain from pushing the with an unratcheted. Okay. Yeah. Very last quick fire question from me. What is your favorite operation? Ooh. I, I think it's, it depends on your it depends on your mood. Okay. I remember, I'd say actually a carotid. I think a, a beautiful carotid in somebody with acute disease you get in there and the dissection is classic mm-hmm. um, the anatomy is classic and you open it up and there's this big this big um, area of disease with fresh thrombus over the top and you think yeah I've done this was it I've done the right thing you know we've saved this guy's brain um i wish our listeners could see your face as you said fresh thrombus oh it's just i I could feel the joy in your in your heart at the thought of fresh thrombus i I guess maybe it's the same for me when i get in and there's a good baby hernia and the anatomy is good and everything's going great and there's not bowel everywhere so 
there's a little controversy about carotid still and um, you know the thought of ever giving somebody a stroke who wouldn't have benefited from having a carotid in the first place is always at the front of your mind so when yeah. you, you do something and you look and go this was absolutely the right call to make you know we have done good for this this patient it's a good good feeling same yeah. with that Patrick Hernia I'm sure oh yes most definitely Okay, so we've talked a little bit about your background. If we just delve into things a little bit more on the professional front, if that's okay, before I hand over to Paddy for the so-called meat of the podcast. Could you take us on a journey through medical school to where you are now? So how did you get from A to B? Um, Sure. I started off by applying for vet school. Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, there were only four vet schools. You could only there were six vet schools, and you could only apply to four. Um, and it's a very early application because the same number of med students, the same people apply for vet school as they do for med students every year. It turns out, but there are thirty med schools and six vet schools. I'm from North London. I don't know why I applied to do veterinary. You know, I'm, I'm a city, city through and through. But you apply very early for that reason, and I didn't get it, and I undenied a bit, and my folks were very keen on applied degrees okay and uh, my science teacher thought I should go into medicine so I emailed a few places and I'd applied to Edinburgh and Edinburgh said okay do some work experience send us a covering letter and we'll you know give us a call okay um so yeah I did some work experience got my results and got got into med school through clearing which is how I ended up at Edinburgh Mm -hmm. which was no bad no, no bad thing. But from North London, yeah. I was, was about as far away as I could, about as far away as I could go. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I'd always really enjoyed research and I took a BSc out. Um, I think part of it was so that I could dye my hair, got a few more piercings <laughs> um, and slightly longer summer holiday. And I, I did it in a, a lab, which I found interesting, but I didn't enjoy like it. That was, lab research wasn't my passion. And I think that was just my mentality really and then yeah back into med school in in Edinburgh absolutely loved it it's a fantastic city it is university and um you know it's very easy to get out and about up north and and the music scene in Glasgow is great it was it was fun I had a good time had a good time and then yeah f1 and f2 I'm, I'm 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 getting the i'm getting the feel that you were quite into your music you know you you wanted to sort of have a year out dye your hair music scene. oh is, is, paddy is you that... stole my shine i was just about to <laughs> yeah. ask that great mind sinker like this is, is is that fair is that a fair commentary yeah i think I, I like, you quite like your music yeah yeah i i did um i was quite into um metal okay favorite band and a bit of uh, a bit of punk incubus. Oh, you're joking! I, oh, my I husband was, loves them so much. So, and I was one of those, you know, oh, those real knobs who was always like, you know, this this new album came out because I remember their third album came out. It was huge, and I was just like, I knew them when they're, you know, I, I've liked them since their first album. And um, <clears throat> brilliant, yeah, brilliant. So maybe but, that's, that's, but that's what's been a, a med student's all about, isn't it? I mean, it, it is a great time in your in your life being a medical student. You know, there are some pressures of exams, but there's a lot of good time to to enjoy yourself, isn't it? And and Edinburgh would have been in a fantastic place. Oh yeah, the the scene there is absolutely fantastic. It, it's very good, and um, you know, you meet a lot of that's what university is about, right? You meet a lot of people who aren't doing medicine, who are doing other things, mm. uh, who are very interesting people who go on to do very interesting. <laughs> things and, and perspectives and things but yes I managed to graduate I did graduate all was well that's lucky <laughs> and f1 f2 up there and I always wanted to go into obstetrics and gynecology and one of the reasons I, I thought I would want to do that was because of medicine sans frontier and one of the key professions they needed um, was obstetrics and gynecology and then I did my obs and gyne placements and I, I did I really enjoyed it. it was fantastic and I also did some more work experience um, in my own time mm-hmm. and I got to the end of a night shift seven you know you, you, I did, some people still do seven nights in a row. yeah in my seventh night shift and a midwife left me bless her in, in absolute tears and it was just it was you know it was just rubbish and that put a bit of a dampener on it for me yeah but then I, I applied for core I applied got to core surgical training and I thought um I really like operating you know obs and gynae 
malignancies. I don't know. I've done my elective up in the Northwest Territories in Canada and I've done Obzangani up there, you know, in really remote areas with a real mix of populations. And it's a, it's fun to, it's, yeah, it's a life-saving specialty. Yeah. As is vascular. Yeah, I, I guess it's a, it's a very heavily specialised one. So the more heavily specialised you are, the more you can do, but it's a much smaller population, I guess. And yes, yeah, so I thought I'd go for core surgical training and then that's two years of really solid surgical grounding and then see how I felt because moving back to Obzangani at that stage, I think, you know, I'd, I'd bring a lot to the specialty and if it wasn't right for me, then I'd carry along in general surgery. So I, I did that and I went down to the South Coast and did my core surgical training down there and started up with a bit more research and then to sail and it's a bit gorgeous down there. And then, um, yeah, I got my registrar training number in the West Midlands and yeah, just sort of run with it. Um, took a bit of time out for research to go and do my thesis um, back in London. Okay. Which is the first time I've been back in London since leaving for university. So that was a really nice time actually a bit close to my folks again, you know, it's, you've seen them a lot more. Um, and also I think London is probably a place that many people like experiencing just the ones to live there as an adult. Yeah. And as a medic. And then, yeah, I, I'd met my husband a few years ago before then, but you know, I think research also gives people a lot of, it gives you finally some time to move your life on a little bit, maybe. So yeah. And then came back to the West Midlands wasn't successful in getting a clinical lecturer post the first time around. Um, so I spent a year continuing the research work that I've been done and finishing my thesis and publishing some bits and then went for the clinical lecturer role um, a year later and got that and have been on a roll with that ever since. Oh, fantastic. What a journey. And before I hand you over to Paddy to learn a bit more about some of the research you've been involved in, can I just say thank you so much for your frankness and your honesty in your journey through medicine? Because I think sometimes, I mean, in my role as a clinical lead, um, leadership fellow, I've met a few medical students and they seem to, to think that there's only one path through medicine and you have to be sure all the time about what you're doing at every possible moment. But you've just demonstrated how, despite having a few twists and turns, you can still get to where you need to be or where you're supposed to be. So thank you so much for that. That was really refreshing, that journey. <laughs> Over to you, Paddy. Over to me. Thank you very much. Uh, Ruth, thanks. Thanks for taking out the time. It is appreciated. I've been really looking forward to this. You know, it has been a tough 18 months almost now, um, but there has been some good stuff, that, some good things that have come out of, you know, uh, of the COVID experience, really. So, as you know, we'll, we'll probably spend about half an hour, so just, just touching around Vern and the cover study and, and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm conscious that this isn't just a pure vascular surgery audience that we're trying to reach out to here. So so we, we, we may just touch on a few things that, that some of our vascular surgery community may already sort of know quite well. But I suppose my first question really is, is you are, your role within, well, what, what's Vern essentially? Shall we start with that? And then you can sort of explain what, what your role is before we sort of touch on the cover study. Yeah, of course. I, I wasn't there at the inception of Vern. So I um, have a strong feeling that Vern was an idea dreamt up in an East Midlands pub um, amongst a couple of the trainees at the time. Uh, one of whom is still on the Vern committee. And uh, the idea was exactly as it sounds. So um, a vascular collaborative so that studies, prospective studies, audits and things like that could immediately be shared amongst a lot of centres to get much more powerful data to put together. And uh, I remember hearing about it. And at the time I was working with a few centres in the West Midlands to try and look at something similar. So a West Midlands collaborative and I was still a fairly junior trainee and I'd just come back to the region and it was it was a bit slow. And I remember listening to that thinking, well, that's the next step forward, you know, making it UK wide, not just West Midlands. Um, and they, they carried on for a little while and they'd done a few big things and they, they applied or they opened up a position for somebody to join linking the Rulo and Vern. And I applied for that position um, because... Again, at the time, it was an inception and there was a lot of crossover between the groups. So RULO is the vascular trainee, the training um, network, but for training, not research. So and they and Vern was 
a trainee-led thing, wasn't it, essentially? 100%, yeah, these yeah. were the trainees in the pub, sorry. And, yeah, I should have made that um, clearer. I mean, that was very much the idea, is that yeah. at the time, trainees are getting the data and doing the work, and it would be their reward for their, their work. Um, so I joined probably three years in, and it's just built up from there. Absolutely fantastic group of really motivated trainees. Mm-hmm. For, oh, it's fa- it's uh, fascinating. It, it's fantastic to see. It's fascinating to see. But b- b- before COVID, you, you'd already done quite a few big projects, hadn't you, really? Yeah, I think yeah. year on year, it's moved forward. The president, so we have like a nominal president because, I mean, you think you just have to. Um, before me was um, Thanos Saratsis, who was at the time a clinical lecturer in Leicester and is now a consultant, an academic consultant there. And he took it a step forward um, and we worked on a study that involved UK centres and also some centres in Greece, so that was the first project that then moved internationally. And that was probably the stepping stone and the, the biggest study that we then covered before moving on to cover at the start of the pandemic. So nothing that Vern has done has been done in isolation. Each step has been taken on the back of the work of the previous trainees just moving it forward a little bit more. And and the previous premise was, was about just using multiple centres to collect large data sets really wasn't that sort of yeah very, um i think that's we, they knew that that's how it had to start yeah yeah and that the place to start is is audits and then prospective data sets but yeah. i think their ambition absolutely was always to move into yeah. larger studies and, and yeah. potentially rcts and, and yeah, grant applications and things so, so so how many within the collaborative sort of how many centers let's say uh, one of the studies you did pre pre-cover how many centers would that was it was it the give the give studies that right did that predate covid that predates covid still um working on that so we looked at about 20 centers so so that just gives people an an idea of the sort of the breadth of the of the collaboration really that you were looking at and there's you know there's not a huge number of centers in the uk other from a vascular surgery point of view so so 20 centers is a significant proportion really so ruth march 2020 end of March Covid is upon us where did cover come from talk talk me through those first few weeks around the, the start of the pandemic so I've just had a chance to revise this and sort of relive it with our the research department in Coventry who sponsored the study and who worked with me for the setup and the timeline was pretty remarkable so we, we'd sort of we'd started messaging at the time, I was still in New Zealand t- at the tail end of my mat leave um, and the Vern group had just started chatting about it and chatting about the impact. And, you know, maybe we should start looking at the impact of workload and because we knew everything was going to start shutting down. Formally on the chat, we started arranging a meeting uh, for the 19th of March where we knew we were going to sat down, sit down and, and talk through some things. And we made a decision on the 19th of March, roughly how it was going to work and some potential deadlines and the core team, which at the time was myself uh, as the president of Vernon and Sandeep, as well as the study co-lead. So by the 23rd of March, we had all of the paperwork ready. So that was the protocol, the consent, the information sheets and the IRS application as well. By April the 3rd, we had IRS approval. So studies were moving through our sponsor sites at Coventry and through IRS at a pace which we'd never, I'd never experienced before in any of my, any of the studies that I'd run before. And yeah, so IRS approval on April the 3rd. We submitted it for portfolio adoption on April the 12th. That was probably the slowest progress that we made and we had to submit a non-substantial amendment uh, at the end of April so that we could include all centres in the UK because the uptake was so surprising and so quick that we had to apply for permission to open it up to all of the centres in the UK. We always knew that we'd like to make it as global as possible um, but the reaching out to global centres you know all of their own ethics and things like that they do on their own turf so from a UK point of view we'll come on to the global bit in in a minute um were you surprised at the uptake uh yes centers yeah i think um i think we were really pleasantly surprised i think the as i said each 
Fern project had built upon the success of previous projects and the, um, the outputs of previous projects. So we knew that we could deliver, but it was also we hoped that it was built on the reputation of Vern, that people knew that working with us meant that we would use the data, we would publish the data and make sure it got out there. And so we hoped that it was a mark of people's belief that we would be able to make it a success. I think that's right. I think, you know, we 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 jumped on the bandwagon as well, you know, in in Cambridge. And and I think, you know, it was a, a because you'd seen that that you that Vern had delivered before, and you knew that this was that had legs really. And it was gonna, you know, it was gonna. You were gonna make this happen, and you knew the people who were involved, and there were people who finished stuff, you know. So, so I think it was, it was certainly that. You got a bit of funding as well, is that right? So you needed a bit of funding, and and did that come quite quick quickly as well? Yeah, that so that is, and that that's the advantage of. When you get more heavily into research, your um, the networking becomes a bit more part of what you do. So we were we able to get in touch with the Circulation Foundation, mm. the Vascular Society, very quickly and ask for very modest funding, and um, but five thousand pounds, which meant that we could then work with the University of Birmingham and their Redcap service, yeah. so that we had a central data collection centre, which is was absolutely vital. And, and you said before we sort of came came on air. That's you know that seems to be the. Uh the way you say it isn't it before we came on air but, um, <laughs> yes you've got the lingo uh, now <laughs> that you shared an office with the birmingham group um the global surge group is that right yeah i do how, 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 how much of an inspiration were they how much of a guide were they you know what what effect did that have on the cover study as a, as a sort of a, a side effect or you know almost yeah a, a huge a huge amount um i Definitely, I credit um, a couple of them, or several of them, with some real mentorship and just general guidance throughout the whole process. Because at the time, they'd been running Global Surge, and that had already gone for um, at least three weeks, three or four weeks. There, having somebody who always has already has an experience of collaborative research and about the right way to do it. So that was the same time that Vern developed their collaborative authorship, corporate authorship model, and we stamped that into the way that we do things making yourself accessible the way we made ourselves accessible, the way that we made all the paperwork accessible um, so people could access it very easily at any time of day or night. Um, and the way that we um, approached people for whether or not they would like to be involved, it was all, it was all absolutely huge. And, yeah, there were, there were some stumbling blocks along the way, and I credit a few of them with guiding us through them. And it's interesting, it, it seems that it ran, it looked from the outside, it was running so, so smoothly. You know, it, it did look like that, but it obviously there were hiccups. There were things that you had to overcome. What 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 was the most difficult thing in those early few weeks that that you would that you had to overcome? Um, I think the main thing is um, even working with a very motivated group of people. If you if you're leading something, uh, and you're all we were all over the UK. You know, we haven't met. I haven't met any of these guys for nearly a year and a half, mm. and. Ultimately, if, if something needs to be done, the only way to do it is to do it yourself. Mm. And that's because other people have many other time pressures and family pressures yeah. as well. So the most And, and, and it, it, it was a difficult time, wasn't it? I mean, people were going on to all sorts of different rotors, people were not doing vascular surgery, for example. Yeah. You know, life was completely yeah. turned upside down, wasn't it, really? And um, we, we all worked very, very hard. A lot of our, you know, both um, myself and Sandeep and our colleagues on the Vern crew, the crew we worked outside of working hours not everybody in the Vern um, team have formal academic time a lot of them are non-academic mm. trainees so a lot of extra hours were worked a lot of meetings it was very intense in those first few months um, just to get things out there quickly and a little hat tip to uh, our president of the time Chris Imre at that time uh, was, he, he was probably just you needed did you just need that little bit of senior open a couple of doors here, here here and there for you did he did he i mean he, he's not paid me anything to say that on this no time. no no but i um <laughs> no you know, it looked that you know it was it, it was vital that it seemed not vital but it it, it 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 seemed that having chris on there as well was was quite an important position yeah. to have really as, as a collaborator i've worked for chris as a as a registrar for three at least three out of the past five years he's an, an absolute mentor to me 
Um, and he's he's seen my career evolve, my academic career evolve through West Midlands and been very supportive of that too. So when we brought this study to him, um, because obviously we needed a, a chief investigator mm. because we weren't Sandeep and I aren't consultants, mm. and he just looked at it and he said, Absolutely, okay, what can I do? Mm. As you say, president of the Vascular Society at the time. So that you know, that meant that there was fantastic support within Vascular Society and absolutely raised its profile. And he's very well thought of and well regarded globally as well. So yeah. Having him in heading it, yeah, and certainly in his role as president of that year, very calming influence upon the upon the profession as as, as a whole. So, so yes, a little a little hat tip to uh, to our ex president. <laughs> Let, let's just focus a little bit on the, the meat, the results, the the what you know, the key things. And I know there's more data coming, and I know there's other things doing, but but what did cover tell us? So we looked what, what at the, were the key factors, yeah, key things. Yeah. So we, we looked at it in three ways. The first thing we looked at was how it impacted service provision around the globe. And we um we developed a scale, we looked at lots of different aspects of vascular surgery. We looked at how we managed our aneurysms, how we managed patients who needed carotid surgery, how we approached patients who needed limb bypasses, and all the other really important vascular services that we provide to keep vascular patients ticking along. And, just, and, and this, just, just to clarify, this was an observational study where, where data was up, uploaded onto REDCap up onto the, um, the database, but it, it was an observational study looking at the, the effects, essentially. Exactly. So th- this first particular biopsy was um, was a survey. So we used Survey Monkey and some functionalities on on that um, to see that almost globally, people had dropped had dropped their service provision by many many degrees, um, and that was globally, even including, for example, the uh, the US, because there was such a variety in how different countries have been affected, but also what their health service is like. So, as Paddy said, within the UK, because of the NHS, we have got very congruent approaches to our medical service. And um, Chris Imbray, the president at the time, uh, had developed very specific ways to make sure that vascular patients were kept safe, but that vascular services were main, you know, maintained as how, however they could be. So immediately, all of the UK vascular services moved to very similar levels across the UK, whereas in countries like Germany, the US, where the health system is very broadly divided between public and private services, some places stopped all of their work because they were overrun. Some places just carried on as normal. Uh, I mean, it's same we had service leads over in Australia who managed to keep their services running almost as normal. But despite that, the overall trend was huge reductions in services, which even even three to four months after the original first major peak, um, we're still struggling to recover back to normal. How many countries did you survey in total? Um, so for this first piece of work, we ended up with uh, 53 countries. Amazing. Just over 250 units. It was a really huge response. And we also got open answer questions to how people were feeling. And, and people were feeling pretty wretched. 53 countries. How, how did you tap into that? How, how did those, how did you open up this to those 53 countries um do you actively seek them or did they come seek you very much a mix in and match um we we developed collaborative links that we just hadn't hadn't developed before uh, and i think lots of people were doing were opening themselves up globally to research contacts during covid anyway so um we have a very uh, multinational group within Vern. We have people with a lot of contacts around Europe who immediately kicked into gear and started messaging people that they knew. And the same with with myself. So that was the first step. Um, And it was like a mushrooming effect. You know, you got to a few centres there. Uh, um, Social media, that was another thing. That's what I was going to come to that. Yeah. What what effect did social media have? Um, Twitter played a very big role because, you know, there are no barriers when you're on Twitter. And being able to work again, to link up with Global Surge, who'd worked with vascular units around the globe as well. So suddenly vascular centres had not just a generic, a fantastic surgical project to work with, but a vascular-specific one as well um, was great. And developing links that we'd had before um, in Australia and new links in Australia and New Zealand, in Singapore, uh, in Germany and over in the US as well. 
Yeah, and that, that was fascinating. That was, you know, how you quickly went global was 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 astounding, really. Uh, and I can't imagine the amount of work it had taken to 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 send all the information out to them to to sort of change it a little bit, you know, to because because from a research governance point of view, while you're not the research governance in different countries would be different and it'd be for the PIs in those areas to, to manage. There still has to be a, an overall, I suspect, an overarching handle on that. Yeah, and, and part of that was um, language. So we, again, we used within our teams, we were able to translate the first part of the survey into several languages hmm. with a functionality on the survey. And that makes a huge difference because people see, you hope people see a piece of work that is doesn't immediately exclude them yeah. and it's for them as well when it came to paperwork for different european centers we were just as communicative and open to trying to provide translations as we possibly could be yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between um translation and interpretation yeah. um, i think so you know i can support translation but the interpretation and making sure that it's right for german patients in germany and patients in spain that was very much up to the local pis mm the nuances around it all exactly yeah no fascinating uh, and and so the results from the first bit were that services essentially tanked didn't they they, they just completely dropped, dropped off and took a long time to get back to normal or, or quite quite a lot of people never quite got back to normal before the second wave came agreed uh, and that's what we found um, yeah. recovery in most places never returned because there were some key services that still couldn't be done like um, for those countries that have aortic screening, that, that never returned back to normal because those face-to-face services never never resumed. A lot of the multidisciplinary team working dropped off and hadn't quite recovered. Some centres were better at getting that remote working yeah. into place. Yeah, and the speeds, the speed at which we all moved and tried to adapt our services was, was astounding. I, I remember a week of just trying to, with our team, just trying to, manage a hub and spoke network with no juniors and we were down to surgeons and managing five hospitals with eight surgeons was you know while still maintaining a 24 hour seven acute on call had challenges and, and, and what i'm interested in is the the uk in the first wave was affected quite differently so so L- london got hit very badly speaking to the you know speaking to the people in london we probably, you know, for example, and, and, and some of the suburbs outside, you know, within 100 miles of London, we didn't get hit as badly as we thought we would do in the first wave. So we were able to track those differences and through that first wave. Um, so we didn't, we didn't even try because the um, also a global surge learning point, but we, if, um, if you're going to run a big global study, you want it to be a global mm. message. A bit like, you know, randomized, a randomised study across different countries. You know, those countries practice very differently, but still the message is the same. Um, so we wanted that message to be, if you're badly hit, these are the services that are, are being impacted. And you're, yeah. not, you're not on your own if your service is being impacted in this way. We have managed to produce a UK, a UK report because, we, you know, one of the um, things I have to accept is that the majority of centres, just around 50%, were UK-based centres. Mm. Um, and so we've produced a UK-centric report looking at specifically how the UK has been impacted, yeah. which we released last week. But we did not look at it on a centre-by-centre basis. No, no, no. Yeah. Did, so uh, you did track through way the second wave. Well, well, I mean the second wave or third wave or what? You know, it's something different. I don't know which wave was which. But the effect around Christmas, which which I think with the new variant where everyone was was hit. Did did you see similar problems in that time? No, we didn't. Um, it seemed like the all of the systems that had been put in place during the first wave meant that centres could carry on gradually increasing their services in the ways that they had been. Um, about yeah, On a personal note, the centre that I was working was hit particularly badly during the second wave, whereas in the first wave it hadn't been hit at all. Um, yeah, that was our experience as well. Yeah, so yeah. suddenly they, the, the team increased the ITU capacity by 250%. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely, absolutely unprecedented. It was a very, so for some places, it was a very different experience, but those core practices that had dropped the first time didn't have to be dropped that time because they had found ways yeah. of making them happen. Yeah, you found ways. But I mean, ultimately, it wasn't 
probably safe to do elective aneurysm repairs anyway because if a patient got COVID, they were struggling, but there was no capacity on uh, in critical care anyway to do any of that. So, so that was that made that decision quite easy. But certainly our pathways, it felt like our pathways are better and we recovered quicker because we, we sort of got that institutional memory from, from the first time. I'm interested in in your, the sort of the second aspect of your study where you, where you were looking at patients who'd gone to gone or, or specific specific patient level data looking at the the effect of covid perhaps on interventions so that was exactly looking at all of the patients who'd undergone an operation or a vascular intervention during that first major pink across 12 weeks and you know we knew that we weren't operating on as many people but you know you wondered if their outcomes were still just as good I think we were quite surprised by the results of that because actually most of our patients did pretty badly. Those that were operated on, and that doesn't even account for those patients who didn't make it to into hospital because they stayed at home. Um, so most pa- people who, who had an intervention during that time did far worse than they would have done if they'd had an equivalent intervention in the in the same time the previous year, for example, and that included amputation lower limb revascularization are carotid patients. The only group who seemed to benefit potentially were our emergency open repairs. And Why do you think that is? Well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? We've all got our theories. We, we sort of imagined that, well, we imagine we experienced that our patient selection changed quite a lot during COVID. Our ITU bed capacity was very limited and our threshold, we know our threshold for treating elective aneurysms was very high. So the assumption that we made and looking at some of the other decision-making changing data that we had suggested that people stopped operating on patients who who were perceived to have less of a chance of making it through the operation. And I think people ultimately just picked, had to make that decision about picking patients that they thought would survive and making harder decisions about who to perform an operation on for a ruptured AAA. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, we, as a group, uh, chatted about the ethics of that, mm. about the ethics of the decision-making that we may have to make and, and had sort of processes in place where we would have team decisions, even in the middle of the night, that, that if we if we needed to, um, we would have a group thing discussion about potential patient. It, it never really came to that for whatever reason, but but we certainly had those in place. That's interesting. That that's that's you know, and it, it's, it's fascinating. Is it? And I've seen the results, but but the outcomes weren't weren't great, were were they? Which, which feeds into the result from the global search stuff, doesn't it? Around our groups of patients that tend to be men over the age of 70, 70 who are ASA three, so. It's sort of all fixed. Absolutely. Our poor results. So, um, you know, we were looking at a 10% mortality for patients who had lower limb bypasses and angioplasties, 11% mortality for patients having carotid interventions. And only only 4% of all of those patients globally had any suspicion or confirmed COVID. So the mortality that we were looking at wasn't associated with COVID itself. It was associated with the decision-making and the processes and also the severity of presentation mm. that patients were coming in with. So it was a systems issue rather than a, a COVID issue. And I suspect if you take low limb bypasses, you were probably trying just to, those ones with minor tissue loss and a bit of rest pain, you were probably just trying to manage manage them through that immediate first wave. So you're really just operating the ones with significant tissue loss who perhaps were the high-risk patients, weren't they? Mm, I, I think I so, interesting and those results are all published or they are so that the people if they want to if they want to sort of look at that in a bit more detail absolutely the the first uh, initial impact on practice was published in the bjs and um, the second one looking at the surgical outcomes um, has been published in the annals of surgery mm-hmm. uh, both of those are available on the Vern website links to those papers Super. So what 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 next for the cover study then? Where where where's it where's it going? What 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 other things should we expect from from cover? So the main thing will be the long term data, 
we've been gathering our six month data. Most of our centres will be at 12 months data by a little later this year. And really, it will be looking at the the medium and long term outcomes of those patients who met the vascular teams um, during that first wave. You know, are they we know patients treatments was always were delayed. So does that mean that the initial mortality hit was very front loaded during during that point where they had their intervention? And therefore, actually, those that made it through their treatments are doing very well. Or does that delayed impact treatment affect those patients all the way out to six months and one year? And the same with those patients who had altered decision making. So those carotids that would otherwise have received an operation but didn't. Did those patients have another stroke or actually is our best medical therapy now very effective? I think that will be fascinating. I hope so. I I, I think out of all of it, I was just speaking to one of our stroke consultants today when we were talking about you know contemporary management of carotid disease and and i was just saying that it'll be really interesting to to see that slightly longer term data out maybe out to a year and just see what the stroke risk was in those in that cohort of patients indeed and um, as a non-vascular surgeon in preparation for today i did um, read some of the literature you've you guys have produced and that was one of the things that struck me just seeing what happens to these patients as a result of covid because despite the devastation the pandemic has brought it's brought a lot of changes to management and a lot of innovation as well so it'll be interesting to see if the decision making during the pandemic has in some way affected people long term and will it continue to change your practice moving forward so i'm looking forward to that data coming out yeah thanks very much so are we so are we were working on it um... but it could have a profound effect couldn't it potentially or it could it could drive further profound profound effects you it know. could um, hypothesis generating i guess is the way yeah to... no i think so yeah yeah super I've, I've got a couple more questions what do you think color has done Vern with, with regard to ongoing studies, new studies and further collaboration. So what, what's the positive effect of cover on Vern? And then as a step forward on vascular surgery research or academia or in the next five, 10 years? Right, I guess I'll try and think about it in parts. What I hope is that um, we have proven the role of trainees in research I think vascular might is sometimes a bit slow to the game from that perspective. A lot of the work and a lot of the research um, now is is done in tertiary centres. A lot of it's operative research, which trainees can't get very heavily involved with. But we've dem- absolutely demonstrated trainees' worth and being keen and involved in research and hopefully also giving them an output that they can use. You know, our authors are all PubMed citable for their contributions. Um, the rest of my Vern colleagues, you know, I, I, think, I think I think I would also say there that you've probably inspired a lot of consultants as well to to jump on that, not jump on the bandwagon is the wrong thing, but to to involve themselves in collaborative work. I think I think they've I think one of the things of, of this is is the power of it is that it has shown that that collaboration really is the way forward. I think. So I think you need to pat yourself on the back for that. I think the mutual support network during challenging times, we've developed a pretty strong support network for each other um, to get through um, the sort of hard work that we've had. And also the opportunity for all of us in Vern to speak to people globally has been an absolute honour. Um, it's really interesting. And to take that forward, hopefully the next Vern project will just be taking the next step from cover and um, from cover as well so i mean it's act, it probably is act as a major building block isn't it in which you can uh, strengthen the foundation i think isn't it of it seems to me from the outside of burn it really has um and on that you can you can really go forth and, and build some very high powered collaborative work now and i think i think funders will look at that and go this is a an, an organization this is a collaborative group that we can really that we trust because of of what you've done and of what you've delivered but i think so don't 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 you i mean De- yeah. definitely um, you know. 
And I think your reputation precedes you a lot more than um, you think, because um, I'm part of the Pediatric Surgical Trainee Collaborative, uh, Research Collaborative, and um, we were at NCRM last year, and Vern is such a hot topic. It's like Vern this, Vern that. So you guys have done a fantastic job getting your work out there and you know, bringing people on board. And um, just as Paddy says, I think it's so important to have our consultant colleagues on our side, encouraging us and encouraging us to be involved in research. So I, I think you've done the specialty proud and, you know, trainees proud. And you, as Paddy said, you really should be patting yourself on the back. Well, pat yourself everywhere you've done so. <laughs> but just on that note, and for any sort of young vascular trainees or medical students or anyone who's interested in getting involved in vascular research, how, how do people get involved? Can they join Vern? How do they join Vern? You know, advertise yeah, yourselves. <laughs> I'm just sort of ruminating, really. I guess this is the first time we've actually been able to sit back and take proper stock talking about it in the way we have it's been it's just been you know as with all research it's just been graphed for quite a long time so thanks for giving me the opportunity no, no, you need to you need to bask in the glory I, I, I think I, I think what it also has done is it, it, it's inspired a I think what you will do is you'll inspire the next generation of younger what trainees generation? I think I think you might have seen that or already I suspect that that would be yeah fantastic. So then, um, because of the way uh, it's a tight a tight knit group, in as much as we um, we speak quite often, so um, we have our our core members who um, we know have been involved or are joining um, and working with us already. But we have a Vern email address. Mm-hmm. Um, our personal in, um, our personal email addresses are available. So certainly myself and I know Sandeep and, and Thanos, for example are always really happy to get emails from anyone interested in research because we've all been mentored and continue to be mentored during all of our training. So if we can pass that down, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. And also approaching the vascular teams at your centres. As I said, most vascular surgeons are slightly unusual, but very friendly bunch and always really happy to teach because vascular surgery isn't taught a lot in medical school. So we love sharing what we know. And you will always be able to find someone with um, a project to take forward um, or, or something to, to move yourself. Move yourself. And, and I think most vascular surgeons also have a slight academic slant, be them, e- even if they're NHS, aren't they? Consultants, they all like to do a little bit of a study here or a little bit of work there and, and get it into the vascular society meeting. Oh, Where the quick projects. Yeah, they're, they're like, I think that's, most vascular surgeons do like that and do find that sort of stuff interesting. I think that's what pulls them to the specialty to, yeah. to, to a degree. Constantly evolving, constantly yeah, changing. Yeah. The technology is constantly changing and, and the medical therapy. It's all so much, there's so many questions to answer, as we know from our uh, priority setting processes that we've gone through recently. Gosh, yeah. I, I'm interested just around how you'll develop the international collaborations that you've, that you've made. Um, how 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 do you see that going over the next few years? Do, do you see Vern engaging with in projects across the globe, or so? There's, I guess, there'll be a slight. I handed over the presidency to Sandeep um, a little earlier on, and so it, it's very much. Um, I don't want to speak for him, Mm. but the way I think we would envisage it is what do we know from cover? We know that we had um, fantastic involvement from UK centres and we had a lot of engagement from some of the European centres. And I think we'll really like, we really consolidate on the collaboration within our European colleagues um, because we, which follows a pattern of, of many studies before. America was a bit, the US, it's very challenging to really draw in to it because of the way they work with individual centres. So I'd be very keen to find ways of setting up a Vern equivalent in the US, which suits the, the fellows' style of working over there. Uh, carry on our, our links with Australia and New Zealand, um, because then we're glad it was spanning the globe. 
but also starting to move into, um, this is a bit of a trite term really, but what we call would consider lower and middle income countries so that we can share knowledge about how different conditions are treated globally and how vascular surgeons approach different things globally, because I think we have a huge amount to learn from each other. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, and a little plug for the, sorry, I'll use this, Ceci, as a little plug for the uh, vascular surgery webinars, which is that Andy Garnham runs, that, that we are looking at doing just that, is to try and to engage and looking how different conditions are managed differently across uh, across the world so so i think that's really important yeah we, we do love a good plug in this podcast. yeah yeah well i thought i'd i thought i'd uh i thought i'd use the opportunity it's all with the it's all with the edinburgh college so it's all above board yes. i've got one last question because we've been going for about an hour now and it's been i could ask you loads i could you know i could just spend all day asking you questions but <laughs> Uh, th- this is comes back to what Ceci was saying. What what would you your uh, advice be for a new specialty trying to set up a collaborative trainee group? I think the way Vern evolved was very organic and meant that the people who started it and stuck with it and took it to where it is now were very motivated individuals, and I think that's probably the best way to start starting small with a small group of individuals who know that they're going to work together and who know that they're going to take it forward and then just starting with a small reputation for something like a multi-center audit and focusing on that getting it published and just stepping stone each time because the lessons you learn each time you move on to the next project are so invaluable that to jump into a big project at the start, you know, you're almost setting yourself up to to fail. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's the way the way forward. Really, that that was brilliant. I, I, um, you know, you you're very modest. I know that. So you've worked incredibly hard. Is it? You know, you've led this with Sandy. You know, so you've really driven this. So so um, well done. I know Vern is a a group of you know a, a relatively small group of dedicated people but there's no doubt that without you and sandy there this would probably not have happened so you know you need to be very proud of what you've done uh, and thank you for giving up your time today i have two very last small questions um, <laughs> oh dear <laughs> um so you mentioned surgical instruments before my question is, what's your favourite musical instrument? We we do have a little bit of a musical theme that goes on in these websites. So you're, you're, you know, if you could pick a musical instrument, what would it be? Oh, if I if I could pick anything to play, I'd pick the piano. Uh, I, I cannot play. I cannot play. But there was um the Desert Island Discs, one of our very well respected, now retired, the first female vascular professor of surgery. Mm grew up and, and as she was growing up she was told that if you can play the piano you will never be lonely and you know there's no like nobody leaves a clarinet in king's cross station do they there's a big piano yeah. there. yeah no 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 i, I believe no. she switched to the cello now if we're talking about the same person i suspect we are yeah multi multi-talented, multi-talented. indeed and finally again this is comes on the theme of um our two uh trainees from leicester that we had on last time who were who were arguing do you have a football team? Oh, sorry, sorry. No, oh, no, I'm no, so no. glad because that <laughs> the last podcast was about ten minutes of the four boys talking about football and me standing there with a face like like stone. I was just oh, like, it's a shame if you're from Leicester. I mean, you, you've got to have a fight about it, don't you? Just prize, quite protected, but no, you sorry. do. Well, Ruth, fantastic. That's me done, Ceci. Over to you. Um, absolutely fantastic, Ruth. Um, it's such a pleasure and an honour to, to meet you and to know you. Um, guys, Ruth, Ruth Benson, that is, and Sandeep Nandra, they're both on Twitter, so you can follow them. Vern is also on Twitter. Please follow them and just get involved. Even if you're not um, vascular, I've had a lot of benefit reading about their studies and you'll g- learn a lot about collaborative research just by right, following their work. I, mean, I, I, I think it's not just about the specialty here it's about process it's about how they went went about things and and go and read some of the earlier stuff as well because that that that, that'll give you a feel of of, as you say of of how the collaborative work has organically grown over time Uh, and and i think for all 
all specialties or all regions, you know, it, it can just be a regional thing. That That's probably the way to start about setting things up. Definitely. Um, so, guys, the email address um, is still the same. If you have any questions or any comments from this podcast, it still comes at rcsed.ac.uk. Thank you so much again to Ruth and to my interim co-host, Paddy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Until next time, guys, stay safe and please be kind to each other. Bye, everyone. Bye.